Well, please uh, feel free to raise whatever questions that you have on the things that have been looked at, uh, explored today. Yes. Yeah, Ajahn, I want to ask, um, in the insight practice, uh, the three characteristics. So when it comes to no-self, um, I feel like, you know, when the analysis is given, that, oh, look, there is no self. Uh, I feel like there's some leap of logic made because obviously the ignorance inside me is saying, oh, yes, there isn't a permanent self, there isn't a unitary self, there isn't an ind independent self, but there is a self. There are these, you know, whether it's the multiple selves, so that's one part. How to further dislodge that grasping towards, okay, there's not this self in this self, but there is a self. And the second aspect is when you say that there is an experience without an experiencer, that throws a further doubt as to how can you have experience without an experiencer. So just as much as the experiencer dissolves, quote-unquote, I can't find that self, as much why not the feeling or the experience also dissolve? Because then the doubt is, okay, you know, when I die, then this so-called self does not experience because the consciousness has left the body. So please, thank you. Very good. Um, so uh, these are good questions. Um, and that's why we practice, because of these, um, the persistent habit of thinking in terms of, uh, of self. It's interesting, even though in the words of the chanting, uh, the translation reads, there is no self in the created or the uncreated, you can't actually find anywhere in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says, there is no self. He says, this is not self, that's not self. Uh, he never talks about a real self either. <laughs> the principle of not-self, it's not a philosophical position, it's a tool to question our habits. So that when you have that experience of, yeah, that logically that all makes sense, uh, this isn't me, that isn't me, but, but, there, but there's this, this that is uh, uh, experiencing things, or is knowing things, and this, this is me. <laughs> Or, I'm not, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but that kind of thing. So, that, uh, in a way, that's the purpose of wise reflection and the uh, process of insight meditation is... Uh, by the way, I'm seeing somebody holding up a phone, f uh, filming things. Uh, we did ask you to surrender your phones to the management, let alone be filming or recording the teaching. So please, be so kind as to uh, at least not be filming. While we're, while we're having this uh, dialogues. So, the purpose of this kind of development of uh, wise reflection and inquiry is looking into that, you know, yes, but, and how there seems to be this, this uh, sense of, of I-ness and me-ness and minus. Uh, certainly, there is the quality of knowing and awareness that is... Uh, in a way, that, uh, the more that you practice, or the more certainly that, uh, uh, that uh, the time I've spent practicing, that, that's the, 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 in a way the one immovable reality is that there is this quality that is, that is knowing. But as soon as you call that a self or an I or even the knower, 
then that's adding on a conceptual construct or a, a, a forming around that quality. The word knowing isn't knowing, it's a word. <laughs> Just like the word microphone isn't a microphone, it's a word. You know? And so that um, it's, a, in a sense, peeling away layer after layer after layer after layer of these uh, densely formed habits of identification and attachment. Speaking about the difference yesterday between Sakaya Ditti, self-view, and Asmimana, um, uh, one, one of the most helpful teachings, or really informative teachings on this I like to quote, is, um, is a, a discourse about a, an elder monk called Venerable Kemaka. Kemaka. And uh, the story in the suttas is he's, he's close to the end of his life. He's very old and quite sickly. And uh, his friends, his other monk friends, send a message to him across the monastery. Um, you know, they ask this young monk, could you ask Venerable Kemaka, now that he's reaching the end of his life, has he finished the practice? Has he realized enlightenment yet? And then, so this the young monk comes across and says, Venerable Sir, have you finished the practice yet? He says, no, I haven't. He goes back and says, no, he hasn't. Well, go and ask him, how has he not finished the practice? And what's he still got left to do? And there's a lot of back and forth... And they keep asking more and more questions through this intermediary. And finally, Venerable Kemaka gets, oh, <laughs> these friends of mine, they're impossible. So he gets up from his sickbed and kind of goes across the monastery and goes to see his, his, old, uh, his old monk friends. And then uh, ensues this very, very helpful dialogue. And he says something along the lines of, even though there is absolutely no uh, identification with the body, with the personality, with feelings, perceptions, consciousness, and so on, still this feeling of I persists. Even though it's not attached to any definable object, still it hovers around. So just like with a flower, you can smell the fragrance of the flower, but you can't quite dis- define where does the fragrance come from? Is it from the pollen? Is it from the stamens? Is it from the petals? Is it from the the nectar, where is the the fragrance coming from? You can smell it, it's there, but you can't see where it comes from. So in exactly this way, this is the sense of of I gathers around the moment-to-moment experience. Uh, As he was giving that Dhamma talk to his friends and explaining, he became fully enlightened. And a few of his companions did too. So Venerable Kemaka not only reached arahantship, but he became one of the very few people to become enlightened hearing his own Dhamma talk. <laughs> so this is a notable characteristic in the, uh, the actually uh, uh, hearing himself. And it's, it's not uncommon. The Buddha does also, when one time he was giving a Dhamma talk, and he turned to Venerable Sariputra and said, have you ever heard me give this, this teaching before? And Sariputra said, no, I haven't. And the Buddha said, neither have I. <laughs> it just occurred to me as I was speaking. So, um, and so that's a, a very good way of, uh, say, defining the difference between Sakaya Ditti, which is uh, focused around the five khandhas, and then Asmimana, which is like that. Uh, it's a sense of I that's not really... Um, uh, definable or, or not it's, it's uh, so subtle it can't really be pinned down or not easily pinned down to any of uh, the five khandhas and so that it's um, 
that uh, that lingering sense of I am or there being an owner for experience or a, um, or a, a, a location, a, a center of experience, um, then that's, that's what, we use the practice moment by moment, day by day, to dig into that. Like one of the, um, the great teachers in Thailand who passed away a number of years ago, Venerable Achan Mahabur, um, he described his own experience of enlightenment. Um, it was shortly after his teacher, Venerable Achan Man, had passed away. And uh, he was at, um, I think he was at Wat Doi Dhammachedi, and he was doing walking, Ajahn Mahabur was doing walking meditation. Uh, and um, suddenly this, this uh, sort of, this phrase appeared in his mind. He said, it wasn't, he wasn't sure whether he was thinking it or whether he heard it, or it was just this very clear sort of phrase, this, that appeared in his mind, which was, uh, um, if there is a point or a center anywhere to the knowing that is the essence of birth in some level of being so it's say you know as soon as there's a here which is geographically here <laughs> then that is also kind of a seed for inus and minus and minus i am here <laughs> because if you reflect on it three-dimensional space geography only applies to rupakanda it doesn't really apply to the mind, to the nama, kandas, the mental uh, factors. And so that you can't really say the mind is anywhere or it stops anywhere. Like, where does my mind stop and yours begin? You know, there isn't a, you can't say there's a spot where, where the mind is or, or is not. So geography, location, uh, doesn't really apply in the realm of mind and certainly in the realm of of awareness so to take a little theme like that like that insight of Ajahn Mahabur and that sort of appeared in his mind like oh <laughs> so he, it was so clear and so distinct so vivid that he just uh, followed that up and just was reflecting on that and then that brought, uh, was a condition for his own full liberation uh, not long after so to take a simple phrase like that if there is a point or a, a center to the knowing anywhere, that is the, the, the uh, essence of birth in some level of being, just to, to take that and so, uh, whenever you have that feeling of here-ness, or like, I, I am here, just to use that kind of reflection to question that, like, well, where is here? What, what is this here-ness? Where, where is here experienced? And so... It's like, a, a, as I said, peeling away those layer after layer after layer to um, those assumptions that, uh, and layers of attachment that we experience. Um, and a lot of it's invisible. Many years ago um, at Abhayagiri Monastery in California, uh, I, I hadn't really f- focused on that. I, I think I'd seen that, that comment by Ajahn Mahabur in previous Dhamma talks and hadn't really made much of it. But um, uh, in the early years of Apayagiri Monastery in California, it was uh, it was a very quiet places up in the hills of Northern California. We had very, uh, very few visitors. Uh, the winter time in California is very very rainy. You get about uh, sixty or eighty inches of rain uh, during a, so October to to April. So it's very rainy. Very few visitors. And it was a small monastic community. So we, and then we have a retreat, January, February, March, 
each year. So about three weeks into this retreat time, my mind was getting very, very quiet. Everything was very, very quiet, very still. And, and in terms of the practice, I could, it was a clear seeing of the things of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. But there was a sense of, there's some kind of, something's clogging up the works. There's some kind of limit or some kind of barrier or some sort of um, stressing here. Like, what is this? And it was like, you know, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, yeah, that's, that seems to all be very clear, but what's, what's, what's this sense of limitation or, 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 or obstruction or burden? And then, um, I don't know what triggered it, but one day it, uh, it just sort of ding. <laughs> there was this sort of thing. Oh, it's all happening here. There's this, uh, it's not, without even a, a, a sort of a visible or tangible sense of me, the experiencer, that the experience is happening here. There's a there's a here-ness in a physical place, and then uh, I thought, oh, I'd never crossed my in twenty five years of monastic life. I hadn't crossed my mind. Like, oh, right, there's that too. And so then um, coming across that teaching of Ajahn Mahabur, I was like, oh, that's what he's talking about. <laughs> that there's even that sense of locatedness. That's a, a level of attachment. That's the, the kind of the, the the cause of obstruction. And everyone is different. We have different kinds of conditioning. Some of us are much more emotional. Some are more mathematical. Some are more logical. You know, some are, uh, are more energetic. You know, we have different characters, different dispositions. So exactly how those different layers of attachment and identification are formed is going to vary. So it's not just uh, identity. It's also time. Uh, that you know, Dhamma is timeless, the sense of time passing. Again, <laughs> the, the mind is creating time as an absolute reality. Location. And then also just the habit of thinking in concepts. Language. Number. <laughs> you know, all of these are constructions. Mathematics, language, concepts. These are all ordinary, everyday kind of actualities. But they are things that the mind can, can give uh, and uh, more reality, more substantiality to than they really deserve. Good afternoon, Ajahn. To continue down this not-self black hole, um, <laughs> you brought up Ajahn Mun, the teaching, his teaching on the citta, Amata Dhamma, I think. Yeah, Amata means deathless. Yeah, the deathless Dhamma. Um, and even your writings and teachings on some, even inconceivable to us, some type of subjectivity of the Buddha or enlightened subjectivity. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little. Speaking of centered, maybe a decentered subjectivity? <laughs> That's probably a, a, an accurate way. It might lose a few of us. But the... Buddha even talks about the Tathagata himself. That, I was talking about it under the Bodhi tree only the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, just the uh, three nights ago, I was invited to give a talk uh, under the Sri Mahabodhi tree, and uh, that was part of the subject I was talking about. That quality of uh, of awareness is present is is kind of illustrated very well in the Kamaka Sutta, but it's sort of in a way brought to an even more full and complete expression 
in uh, a dialogue between the Buddha and a wanderer called Vachagota. And there's many, many rich dialogues between Vachagota and the Buddha. He was a, a wanderer from a different, uh, a different group, a different sect. He used to come along and ask the Buddha questions. And so we're, we're blessed with, with the, the records of, of uh, Vachagota's inquiries. And he said, well, what? <laughs> Had many, what about this? What about that? And, and uh, so there's a number of, uh, of significant dial- uh, exchanges with Vajragata, one of which was silent. The, the silence of the Buddha with, with Vajragata is one of the most important teachings. <laughs> but uh, probably the most famous dialogue is called Vajragata and Fire. And so Vajragata has come along to the Buddha and has asked him, what happens to an enlightened being at the death of the body? You know, where, where, do, where do they go? What happens to an enlightened being at the, at the death of the body? Um, do they reappear in another realm? And the Buddha says, reappear does not apply, Vacha. Then he asks, well, do they not reappear in another realm? Do they cease to exist? And, and the Buddha says, does not reappear, does not apply. Then, uh, following up every logical angle, well, do they both reappear and not reappear? And the Buddha said, that doesn't apply either. And then the fourth possibility, do they neither reappear nor not reappear? And the Buddha says, that doesn't apply either, Vacha. And then, so Vacha Gautas says, well, I'm really confused because <laughs> one of those must be the reality. That's got, doesn't that cover everything? Um, and the Buddha said, well, uh, Vacha Gautas, the the way you ask the question presumes a reality that doesn't exist. And he's still puzzled by this. And so the Buddha uh, gives one of his great examples. He said, so Vacha, if we had a little fire burning here of sticks and grass, uh, and then the fire went out, and I asked you the question, where did the fire go, north, south, east, or west? How would you reply? He said, well, I would say the question doesn't apply, Venerable Sir, because it didn't go north, south, east, or west, it just went out. And then the Buddha said, exactly. (laughs) The way you put the question and presumes a reality that doesn't exist. Reappears, doesn't apply, does not reappear, does not apply. So, you know, it, uh, individual existence doesn't apply. Going doesn't apply. You know, realm doesn't apply. You know, where doesn't apply. You know, where do they go? Like, going doesn't apply. They doesn't apply. Where doesn't apply. <laughs> so our thinking mind is sort of run out of... of um, of uh, possibilities, because you know, we th- our thoughts and our language, and our framing of things is all informed by the th- three-dimensional world and sensory experience. And so we have to borrow. We don't have to, but we <laughs> we do borrow from our sensory experience of three-dimensional space and time and individuality, a, a place where the world is experienced from, to try and describe that reality but none of that applies so then the uh, then the Buddha goes on to explain and this is the part of the teaching that is I find most helpful he then says um, Vacha, that material form whereby someone trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him that's been cut off at the root made like a palm tree stump deprived of the conditions for existence and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, exactly the same. They've all been cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The bridge is down. <laughs> there's, no, there's no 
connection. Uh, so the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perception, and mental formations, consciousness. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So in this scenario, you've got the two of them talking together. There's Vajragata and the Buddha having a conversation. And he's face to face, he's saying, what you are experiencing here is undefinable in reality in terms of the five khandhas. Vajra's seeing him sitting there. He's hearing his voice. He's, he's listening to his words. But he's at the same time, the Buddha's saying, that which you're experiencing can't genuinely be defined, can't be reckoned, can't be measured in terms of the five khandhas. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So there's a quality there. And, and as I was actually giving, describing this under the Bodhi tree a few days ago, I was thinking, well, even hearing these words, people can say, oh yeah, well there's this kind of special Tathagataness that is the, the, real, the real self. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> any concept, any, any languaging of that quality, any... Uh, location, anything to do with location, time, identity uh, is uh, to be dropped. Uh, but I feel when the word that he uses the word Tathagata, it's not just referring to, to him as a, an individual, but rather it's referring to the awakened mind, that awake, aware quality of the mind, in its essence is undefinable in terms of the five khandhas. But it's profound, immeasurable, unfathomable like the great ocean, is, is a, a, even, to, even to call it, it. <laughs> kind of like, no, nah, it's, not, it's not a thing in the world of other things. Uh, it's a, that equality, if you like, a, a quality. Um, that it, uh, and just as standing uh, at, the, um, at the shore of the ocean, or actually standing under the Himalayas, there's a, a wow factor. You know, standing on the shore of the sea, the sea is is limitless. You, you can't see the end of it that goes over the horizon. It's vast, you know, and you can't see what's underneath the surface. There's a, there's a quality of mystery and wonderment. There's a sense of powerfulness. The, 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 the waves of the ocean and its presence is enormously powerful. And the Buddha uses that image of, like the great ocean, it's, the presence of it is, 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 um, is striking, is powerful, is... Uh, is real, but you can't uh, define it, how deep it is or, or uh, how, where its limits are. So he just he uses that image of the ocean as a way of characterizing that. So I would say in the development of insight, the practice of insight, what we're doing is clarifying that awake, aware quality and freeing it from its habit of attachment to the five khandhas. And so that uncentered uh, subjectivity centerless subjectivity that uh, is one way of describing that awake aware quality and so um, uh, but not turning that into a, an individual or a self or a, an I yeah, I, I just worry about following the other way in denialism you know if we deny all these qualities you know if we're just denial 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 then you can fall into complete non-existence or nihilism we don't want to be I don't know now I'm getting confused you know, yes, yeah. I wouldn't say just because of letting go of attachment to um, the the body, the personality, and, and the feelings and so forth, it can drift into vibhava tanha. Yeah, I'm not the body. I'm not the body. 
you know, that's not me, that's not mine. It can, it can be colored by that kind of aversion. Like, you know, these thoughts are not mine, not me, not mine. You know. <laughs> and there's the kind of rejection or suppression. But that would be uh, not recognizing the, the habit of, or the, the presence of vibhavatanha. So I'll, I'll get on to pavatanha, vibhavatanha, the desire to exi- be and the desire to get rid of um, in a little while. <laughs> but uh, any kind of practice or any tool that is used can be misused. Like your neat set of screwdrivers and each dukkha anatta, you know, you can, you can hack your finger open with a screwdriver and ah, blood everywhere. It's not what it was for, but, you know, you used it in the wrong way. So you, you cut your hand open and so that it's painful and it's a mess. So the tools of meditation can be exactly the same way. Ajahn Sumedha would use that, uh, would say that the, the Buddha is the ultimate subject of subjectivity. And also it's very much a part of the forest tradition in Thailand to say that taking refuge in the Buddha is that choice to be awake, to be aware. That when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's not just referring to Gautama Buddha or the, the other you know, Buddhas who've lived in the past, but that inner quality of awareness, that's, that's the accessible refuge. And teachers like, uh, like Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabur, Ajahn Buddhadasa, and so on, would emphasize that the, the Buddha that's a refuge is not the, the Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago, but the, 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 the Buddha which is the awake, aware quality. That's the, that's the safe place for you in this moment, for, for this, this body, this mind. The safe place is that attitude of awareness. That's what genuinely protects. I realize that other Buddhist traditions, you've got... Uh, <laughs> We've got different relationships to, to, to Buddhas and, and uh, relating to, to Buddhas and refuge in Buddha in a different way. And, and so in the, the forest uh, tradition, Ajans would often be aware they were, because even in, in countries like Thailand or Sri Lanka or Myanmar, like saying the Gautama Buddha is not the refuge, the awareness of your own mind is a real refuge, that can sound a bit heretical, like, how dare you, you know, what are you saying? You know, you know how, how can you say that? But... They, within the, the, the forest tradition teaching and approach is it's very practical and say well when the mind embodies that awake aware quality whether what's being experienced is pleasant or painful uh, confusing or clear uh, that there is no uh, there's no suffering created on account of that it, it is the safe place it is the refuge um, that because the that attitude is the way that every experience is being processed. Even if it's painful, it's, it's just a painful experience. If it's a pleasant experience, it's just pleasant. That's all. It's not, nothing's being added to it. So the, the heart is established in that quality of invulnerability, unshakability, that, uh, a ninja, uh, uh, that uh, unshakable quality. So, any other questions? Yes. Yesterday and also today you mentioned this term, uh, stream entry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, could you just elaborate what that means? Because it seemed to be a, I don't know, there's something to it. So, I'm just curious <laughs> about it. Yes, there, I would say exactly so. <laughs> so. Stream entry, as I was saying yesterday, is the first of the four levels of enlightenment. And... The encouragement uh, in the, is expressed over and over again about the, the value for lay people or monastics or anybody to reach that level of realization, and if uh, if possible, since uh, it 
greatly reduces the, uh, the degree of suffering and difficulty, distress that you'll that will be experienced in this lifetime and in future lifetimes. And according to Buddhist psychology and uh, sort of mapping of of the reality, uh, the sphere of reality, uh, uh, guaranteed full and complete enlightenment within seven lifetimes. So that's quite an attractive possibility. (laughs) So stream entry, um, it's going beyond doubt. The the second element, vichikicca, is going beyond doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. Like This is the work that's going to make a difference. This is the insight that is... Um, uh, the um, key aspect of spiritual training that's going to make the, the, the essential difference between carrying on in ignorance and heading towards enlightenment. So what is the path and what is not the path? Uh, and then the third one, attachment to conventions, is how, uh, again I spoke about that briefly yesterday, so that it's the, um, the way that we uh, attach to it's like social forms, right? What's the, the right clothing to wear? What's the, the value of money? Like in Britain, they just changed the currency because the, it's 20 pound notes and 50 pound notes with the Queen's face on became invalid currency. Just boop. You know, take your, your 20 pound notes to the bank because next week they won't be worth anything. You know? <laughs> Get the new notes with King Charles on the, on the, on the note. So uh, a convention of money is like, okay, this piece of paper or plastic is worth so much. And then that, but that worth, that value, is a human agreement. It's a convention. It, in, in itself, it's just a rectangle of paper or plastic, and that, that's what it is. Its value is given by a human agreement. So attachment to conventions uh, is uh, believing in those human agreements as having um, a, f- a fundamental substance. And so often it's spoken about, particularly with religious rituals like. Um, bathing in the Ganga will clear away all your bad karma, or being baptized um, by a priest will uh, guarantee you a place in heaven. And uh, if you're a Christian and such like, saying, "Well, these are these are conventions; these are agreements that there there can't be anything absolutely substantial there. These are um, ritual forms and structures, and so that the uh, attachment to those as having a- absolute and intrinsic value." is uh, what, what needs to be let go of for that fetter, that third fetter to be broken, to, so, to recognize those, those three qualities, self-view, let go of self-view, uh, to recognize what's the path, what's not the path, and to let go of attachment to conventions and rites and rituals. Um, so those, those three. There's also simpler ways that it's, um, it's recognized, having unshakable faith in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha and uh, a natural uh, adherence to the, the five precepts is also a way, and a sim- kind of a simpler way of representing that same change of heart. Uh, I, I mentioned the simile of the, the fingernail, you know, the, scratching the, the ground, saying you know, the amount of suffering you can experience. So there's a whole string of little suttas that the Buddha says similar things like, what is greater, you know, five grains of rice or, or the whole Himalayan mountain range? Venerable Sir, five grains of rice is a very small amount. The great Himalaya is very large. <laughs> so he says, so too, you know, the, the uh, amount of suffering you can expect to experience if you haven't made the breakthrough to stream entry is like the Himalayas. And, and five grains of rice is what you can expect to experience if you've made the breakthrough. 
So it's also, in a way, a more achievable goal than uh, if we uh, think we, we've got to aim for full and complete enlightenment and anything else is not worth it. Um, I, I did a, a book together with, with Ajahn Pasana on, the, on Nibbana. Actually, the last time I was here at Deer Park, we were looking at one chapter of that book for that, that week. And one of the, the areas that Ajahn Pasana wanted to emphasize was stream entry and taking that as a, an achievable goal, uh, a, a direction to set. That Often people only want the highest, the mostest, the bestest, and, and then feel like I can never make it because it's, it's beyond me. But say, well, instead of, of thinking arahantship or nothing, <laughs> that to, to set the, the bar a little lower... And to uh, and to see on a practical level that stream entry is uh, is an achievable level of uh, of realization and um, and very worthwhile, extremely beneficial, and uh, a great blessing in your life and the lives of those around you. The danger is that I want to be a stream entry. I'm going to become a. <laughs> so then the I I making and mind making attaches to that, but. Um, there can be very distinct goal-directedness and effort made, as I've been saying a few times over, without the self-view coming into it. And in in a way, part of the reason why self-view is the first of the fetters is like, okay, I have to do the work of spiritual practice free of self-view. That's kind of lesson one. (laughs) That's the the first of the ten fetters, because if... If the, our spiritual efforts are, uh, are based on I've got to become, I want to be this, I don't want to be that, I've, I've got these defilements, I've got to get rid of them, then it's all cast in the, in the I'm an unenlightened person who's got to do something now to be enlightened in the future. It's kind of within the framework of believing in the person as a solid, permanent, individual reality. So... Uh, Venerable, I have a question about meditation, sitting meditation. So how do we know we are anchored in our breath and when to shift into broadening our uh, concentration to other things around us? Uh, the short answer is experiment. Yeah? And to, uh, to see, uh, to uh, assess as, uh, as far as possible. Okay, the attention seems to be well, well settled and... Uh, and steady, uh, perhaps this uh, is sufficient, let's let go of the breath and see what happens. And then if you find that within two or three seconds, you know, <laughs> you're carried away, so, okay, that's a clear sign, the, the concentration isn't steady enough, okay, go back to the breathing and, uh, and re-establish re, uh, re or work, work some more to establish that basis. Um, there isn't a fixed point, Everyone is different, so I was to say experiment and see what works and think, oh, I have to do at least 20 minutes with the breath before I can even think about uh, letting go of that. Well, perhaps, perhaps not. You know, it's, it's not a fixed thing. So uh, I, I encourage an experimental uh, attitude towards these things. Thank you, Venerable. I find it easier to do walking meditation than sitting. Like, I don't know what to make of this. <laughs> Is one doing it correctly, if uh, or no? And sometimes there, there, it's not a matter of correct. I think different <laughs> people have different different dispositions. Uh, some people find it uh, 
Yeah, a lot more helpful to do walking meditation than sitting meditation. Some people they say, yeah, even though the field of perception is much more complicated and colorful in walking, they say, my concentration for some reason is much better when I'm walking than when I'm sitting still. Okay. <laughs> Go with that. Well, one of the great forest ajans, uh, uh, Lumpu Kao, used to do nine hours of walking meditation every day. It's kind of famous for... He would do three hours of walking and then he'd be ready to sit for an hour. He had a lot of energy, <laughs> even into his old age. He, he had a walking path with a handrail beside it. He, 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 he liked to do walking meditation. It was, uh, and he was very um, highly regarded as a, a highly accomplished meditator. But walking meditation was something he found very helpful for him. Thank you. Has Buddha offered any view on purpose of my life, especially given that it's a suffering? Purpose of your life? <laughs> um, well, I would say the um, rather than the purpose of our lives, I would say the potential of our lives. Um, uh, ever since I was a small child, the phrase, the, the meaning of li- what well, you know, the meaning of life. Even when I was small, I thought. Why, why meaning? Never, did, never made sense to me, and uh, uh, and purpose in a similar way is uh, it implies a kind of plan or a a, a, um, a program that we've sort of found ourselves in, we're, you know, as if we're in a, a um, players in a in a game or, or pieces in a chess in a chess game. Um, so I would say the potentiality of our life rather than the, the purpose, and that uh, if that makes if the, the difference makes makes sense, that we have these bodies, we have these minds, and that uh, the potential that is here is that these these minds, these hearts of ours, can be freed from all greed, hatred, and delusion, and then the the um, the result of that is then our uh, for as an individual life will be much more you know, peaceful and delightful spacious um, but also for the the people and the other beings around us they'll be benefited by having someone who is uh, unselfish kind honest generous and uh, helpful in their midst the um, um, the particular Qualities that we have as part of our education, our work, the, the the area that we've been active in our lives, then if the heart is freed from greed, hatred, and delusion, then the the work that we do, or the area that we've been we're committed to, or that we've been interested in, then we'll be able to function within that domain of activity far more effectively. We'll be able to communicate much more clearly, and and. Uh, can basically do good stuff <laughs> in the world to, uh, uh, with um, far more effectiveness, uh, far more effectively, and without any kind of self-centered burden in, in the heart that we, we do what we do, and if it works well, then we rejoice. If we put our best effort into it and, and things just don't ripen, then okay, so be it. There, you know, there was... Um, Things that the times that the Buddha gave teachings, and and it says, and the the monks were not delighted in the blessed one's words. And, and 
That was it, you know. They didn't like what he had to say. That was, okay, that one didn't, <laughs> that one didn't get through. <laughs> and so the Buddha wouldn't feel uh, you know, upset or irritated uh, because uh, the, the people who were listening uh, didn't, didn't appreciate what he was saying or found fault with it. Just, okay, he explained things as well as he could uh, and he ex- explained the things uh, he was trying to as well as he could and some people uh, understood it, some people didn't. And okay, so be it. So that uh, the potent, that I would say, in the potentiality of our lives, uh, it's also, I would say, kind of helpful not to have a fixed plan. I mean, you set a direction, like towards stream entry or <laughs> to, towards working the, uh, in the best way possible to to free the heart from its burdens and obscurations. But if you have, I want to achieve this. And I want things to turn. Uh, I really want to make a, a, a change in this area, in that area. Uh, it's. I would say it's. In my experiences, it's helpful if you leave it fairly open. Exactly how those those goals might be kept, uh, might might be achieved, and just see how how things take shape as you go along. Like uh, life is very unpredictable, and so. Um, Saying, well, I, you know, I feel I can help in this area. You put some effort and some time and some energy into it, and you realize, well, that was, <laughs> that was a total dead end. <laughs> it didn't work at all. Okay, never mind. Uh, you walk away and, and, and uh, nothing, is, nothing is lost, nothing is wasted. And other times you put energy and effort into something and everyone... Uh, rejoice! Wow, this is amazing. This is wonderful. That's so helpful. How, you know, you've, you're a, you're a blessing to the world. This is fantastic. Okay, again, you're, there's a, a an appreciation. Well, that that one worked, uh, but you don't take it as a, a as a kind of a, a source for ego inflation. Like, how big a statue should they make of me? You know? <laughs> there may be one more. Yes. You mentioned meditation is is a tool. Uh, different techniques are a, a tool to understand reality as it is. And there are obviously times when one technique may work for someone and not the other, like other person mentioned, right? Absolutely. How do you identify that? What's the inflection point, basically? How how does one go about identifying that this method is working for me or not working for me? And basically, how to ensure that you are actually uh, progressing in the path. Uh, same as to our friend over here, the experiment. The measure is, in, in a sense, is suffering and not suffering. Our teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to emphasize, you know, you, you have to be the judge. No, no one can really know apart from you. Like if, if someone says, you know, you're doing well or you're doing badly or this isn't good for you, it's like, you don't know, <laughs> you don't know that they're, they're right or accurate and they could be, they could be mistaken. So, um, so the, the main thing is looking for yourself and saying, well, uh, okay, I've been putting time and energy into this and I'm just getting more and more confused and more stressed and, it's, and I'm being alienated from more and more people. I think this isn't a good fit. Or it might be that you put time and energy into something and, it, well, this is hard work and it's really challenging, but uh, I'm kind of feeling better. And people are asking me, oh, you know, 
what happened to you? <laughs> what happened to you this week? You look, you look, you, know, you look ten years younger. You know, what have you been doing? You know, oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's this is hard work and it's it's challenging, but uh, uh, I'm feeling better on the inside, and others are saying um, that, the, you know, that they are uh, they're struck by how it seems to be helping. So you're kind of reading the signals. Uh, it's rather like in a laboratory if you're you know, doing an experiment or you're in a, in a kitchen with <laughs> experimenting with, with ingredients for some food, you, you're trying things out and say, okay, how much do we need to put in of this reagent? Okay, you know, one mil, two mil, three mil, whoa, okay, too much. <laughs> uh, so experimenting and then also, uh, again, going back to the question of, of um, spiritual friendship and the importance of, of um, association with the wise which is uh, having spiritual friends and like-minded people around, checking in with your friends and saying, well, I've been doing this and I've put a lot of time and energy into this and I feel it's doing, uh, it's, uh, it's doing me a lot of good. How do I seem from, from, from your side? Well, yeah. And if they say, well, actually, we've been really worried and we've been talking, you know, we're, we're really concerned, you know, that... Uh, this, uh, you know, you seem to, things seem to be really out of balance. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, we've been worried for a long time. Okay, so, and then getting, being prepared to receive feedback from people you know, they're like-minded, they care about you, they're not biased in any way. So both your own subjective experience and then also your, your friends. Also, if you, if you have a spiritual teacher, a meditation teacher, to check in and say, well, I've been doing this and this, you know, and seems to be having a good result, you know. How is it? Like when um, when uh, Ajahn Chah um, met Ajahn Sumedho for the first time, he was a, uh, a newly ordained monk. It was 1967, uh, long time ago. <laughs> and uh, he, Ajahn Sumedho had been a, a, a novice. He was in his early 30s. He'd been a novice for a year in a little meditation monastery in Nongkai, in uh, further up the Mekong River in northeast Thailand. And he just received full ordination as a monk, and he realized he needed to proper training in, in Vinaya, in the monastic discipline, because where he was living, it was a very strict meditation monastery, but there was no emphasis on, on living uh, uh, together as a group or in, in the Vinaya discipline. And then he'd heard about Ajahn Chah, and he had a very good reputation. So he asked permission from his preceptor and went down and met Ajahn Chah. And the kind of practice that Ajahn Sumedho had been doing, ever since he was a layman, he'd learned from a, a great Chinese meditation master from a collection of books called Chan and Zen Training by a man called Charles Luke, or Lu Kuan Yu. And they were published by Ryder uh, in the 1950s, early 60s. And when he was uh, in the Peace Corps, he had a, a friend of his send him copies of these, these books um, from Hong Kong, I think, to, to him, in, where he was in, in Borneo. And, and he used the, the, guide, the meditation guidance from this great Chinese master, Master Xu Yun, uh, as his meditation teaching. He was interested in Buddhist meditation, and, and he wanted to learn. And he used, again, uh, later this week, we'll get on to this kind of practice, but the, the method that Master Xu Yun uh, described was using the question, Who am I? as a meditation theme. And uh, rather like Sri Ramana Maharshi, the, the very, very similar uh, approach, using this uh, way of investigating who am I as a meditation question. 
and as cultivating that quality of investigation wise reflection and so he'd been doing this for two years you know, two years or so both as a layman in Borneo and then when he was a novice in Nongkai been using this practice and um, and he found very good results coming from it from his own experience and so when he went to see Ajahn Chah as a, as a very newly ordained monk, he thought Ajahn Chah was going to say, oh, no, 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 don't do that. You, know, you, should, you should do my method. You know, you're at, you know, if you stay at my monastery, you have to do the Wat Pong uh, monastery method, um, which was kind of, not, in, in Thailand at that time, different monasteries had different sort of uh, practices, that, you know, the different methods that individual teachers gave. And to his great surprise, uh, Ajahn Chah said, so what are the results? And, and he had, luckily there was one monk there who could speak both Thai and English, who translated for him, because he couldn't speak any Thai at that point. And he said, well, you know, the, the results are very good. I really appreciate the insight that comes from that. Um, and uh, and so uh, um, Ajahn Chah said, okay, we'll just carry on doing that. And he was like, really? He said, yeah, just, just do that. And a, a few months later, after he'd settled in at, at Wat Papong and was living with Ajahn Chah, and he could speak a bit more Thai, he asked Ajahn Chah, so had you ever heard of that practice before? And he said, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says, but you were okay with me just using that as a spiritual method? And he said, yeah. He said, well, you said it was doing you good, so who am I to argue? And so that was one of those points where Ajahn Sumedha realized, I'm with a very unusual teacher. <laughs> This, this Ajahn is quite exceptional. And he said, no, it's you, you judge. I can't tell you that what, the peace you're experiencing isn't real peace, or the understanding that you're experiencing isn't real understanding. You, you know, it's your mind. So even though Ajahn Chah had been a monk for like 25 or 30 years at that point, and Ajahn Sumedha was just very newly hatched, he was, um, no, it's your mind. You're, you're the one watching it, you know. Um, so... That uh, and he's told that story many, many times, and uh, and uh, Ajahn Chah would emphasize that it's like you have to use your own experience. Don't don't trust the authority of the Ajahn, but know for yourself. And uh, and a story again with that same encounter with the Buddha and Venerable Sariputta, uh, when the Buddha said, "Sariputta, have you ever heard me give this teaching before?" And then Sariputta said, "No, I haven't." The Buddha said, "Well, no, I've never heard it before either." And then, then the Buddha went on to say, uh, and Ajahn Chah would tell this story many, many times. Um, it's a kind of um, uh, elaboration on the, a couple of events in the, in the scriptures. And uh, he said, so do you believe what I'm saying is true? And then Sariputta said, not yet. And so then um, you think, wow, the, the, the disciple is kind of uh, insulting the master in front of his whole crowd of people. It's just giving a teaching and how can he be so rude or disrespectful? You know, he's saying, I don't believe you. Yeah. And then the, the Buddha says, so sorry, Puto, you know, why not? And he said, well, because I haven't had the chance to, to test this out and see uh, for myself. And the Buddha said, good, sorry, Puto, good. You know, <laughs> that even though you, uh, you have faith in me as a fully enlightened Buddha, and I'm your teacher, and you're my chief disciple, even so, you know, that, that when you hear something, you should test it out and know for yourself. So Ajahn Chah told that story over and over and over again. Because like, he was very highly revered and trusted as an authority. So people would say, whatever you say, Lumpur, tell me what to do. You know, you, you know have all the answers. And he'll say, no, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> you, you, you. You have to look at your own mind. You have to know. 
Don't just take my word for it or don't expect me to know your mind better than you do. And so over and over again, it's encouraging us to look at our own, our own mind and be our own authority. So it's a very much a, a kind of... Um, yes, you do have somebody sitting up on the high seat in the middle, making all the, <laughs> making all the noise. But it, it, uh, and I found that was very powerful, very inspiring from Ajahn Chah saying, don't look at me, look, look at yourself. It's you that that know uh, what works for you, and also you that's got to do the work. So, that's a, a long answer to a short question, but basically, uh, that's that's really the only reliable thing. And then also the feedback from your spiritual friends—that's what is uh, going to be a, a helpful guide. Yes, this gentleman again. So I wanted to go back to this topic of uh, concentration. Because as we, you know, engage in the meditation practice, we're trying to strengthen our concentration, our focus. So, I've experienced, or at least I've read some biographies of creators, um, um, writers, mm-hmm. uh, artists, uh, sculptors. So, uh, one sort of quality that seems to be common is their intense concentration mm-hmm. when they're doing their work with that passion. Mm-hmm. And... At some level, I experienced something like that. Mm-hmm. And I found that when I'm meditating, um, I also find that kind of, I don't know what to say, satisfaction or you know, feeling good about kind of a thing. So I have always wondered whether the two are similar. Uh, let me just preface this. I just, based on your response to the earlier question, I think one answer is that, yes, I have to figure it out myself. <laughs> so, I, I understand that. But still, I would like your insight into whether there are, you know, similarities or is it the same kind of concentration or even that is a meaningful distinction to make. It's um, uh, a good question. I would say that it's concentration. Um, it's also why people do uh, dangerous sports. Uh, like jumping off a cliff and flying through the sky, <laughs> and uh, that that uh, people love that state of concentration. It can have a a, a very wholesome object, uh, a neutral object, or a really unskillful object. You know, if you're a safe cracker, you know you're really focused on getting that safe open before the authorities arrive. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, I actually knew some armed robbers in in England. They used to come to Amravati Monastery. There are a gang of armed robbers. I'm sure they're, they're okay with sharing this. But the, the, yeah, they were all ex-military and had a difficult time outside the army and the stresses of army life. And I, m- I remember one of them saying, uh, when, when you're on a job, <laughs> your mind is perfectly clear. It's, everything is really simple. You're totally... They're, they're actually you know, carrying out armed robbery. He said, Friday afternoon at the supermarket is the best one, Ajahn. Yeah, I know you don't need to know that. <laughs> but that's when they got all the takings for the week. Said, so, yeah, I don't need to know that. <laughs> I'm not going to need that information. But uh, I said, yeah, you're completely... And that sense of concentration, or that total focusness, yeah, this danger and the, the conflict, is incredibly unwholesome, but it's still concentration. I would say things like uh, artistic creation, like with music, um, uh, the kind of concentration that's needed uh, uh, is is very, very acute. Or, or dancers, painters, you know, 
uh, writers sometimes, you know, someone will uh, get into writing a story and they're, they're so absorbed in what they're writing. Like, my, my goodness, I just did 30 pages. Wow, what happened there? So it can have some benefit that comes from what is being written or the, the music that's being played. And that, that can be helpful, but then also it can be a cause for, uh, for distress. If the only way you can feel good is to be jumping off a cliff or robbing a, <laughs> robbing a supermarket or, or, um, or uh, in that state of absorption with, with a piece of music, then when you're not there, then life can be very depressing or challenging or feel worthless. And so it's uh, uh, sama samadhi, uh, uh, so right concentration or concentration that's in, in tune with Dhamma, with reality, is it's got a very wholesome object, and it's, uh, it's, it's, so that has very beneficial and liberating results. And then wrong kinds of concentration, micha samadhi, it's um, still a concentration, um, but it doesn't have a, necessarily a liberating quality. There's a story about uh, Leo Tolstoy, the author, and uh, he was also a, a, a high-ranking aristocrat in, in old Russia. And, uh, uh, but he used to go out in the harvest time, he used to like to go out in the fields and, and cut the, 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 the corn with his serfs, his kind of uh, indentured labor force uh, on his estate. And one, one summer he got into this state of absorption um, and he was, his mind was, was in this sort of jhanic state of concentration. And he cut acres and acres and acres of corn. And it was completely blissful and, uh, and effortless. And he thought, wow, that was extraordinary. And it said that in subsequent years, for, uh, he, he was cut he, uh, more and more corn every year, trying to get back to that state. But he could never quite get to the, that quality. So that it was blissful, and, uh, and, it, and it helped get the crop in. <laughs> but trying to get back to that or feeling unable to get to that was, was there was a sense of, of loss or separation so let's have a bit of a break now um, thank you for the silent clock <laughs> the previous one there was lots of ear consciousness <laughs> for the ticking of the clock so uh, let's have a bit of a break <laughs> 